Welcome to The People with David and Bam on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. My name is David Kim. And I'm Christina DM Pham. Thanks for tuning in for episode six. It's Saturday, April 24th. You can join the conversation every Saturday morning from 10 to 11. Today, we'll talk about news happening right here in our city, including a $1,000 per month universal basic income program coming to Los Angeles. We're also hosting Christian Contreras, a civil rights lawyer working to hold police accountable for their abuses of power, who's going to talk to us about the Derek Chauvin verdict and much more. And we'll shine a spotlight on upcoming events and community actions in our city. We're here to share what's going on in your neighborhood, talk about issues that impact you, and highlight the goodness within our communities. Remember, our show is rooted in you, the people. We're here to turn up the volume on y'all's voices. We're here to hold space for your concerns. And ultimately, we're here to empower y'all with the knowledge to make informed decisions as community members. So to kick things off, on Tuesday, the jury in the trial of Derek Chauvin found him guilty in the murder of George Floyd. Last May, Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes and 29 seconds, while Floyd said, I can't breathe, over and over again, 27 times to be exact. The jury found Chauvin guilty of all three charges, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Sentencing will take place at a later date. Since Derek Chauvin's trial began on March 29th, more than three people a day have been killed by the police. At least half were from black or brown communities. On the same day Derek Chauvin was found guilty, a police officer in Columbus, Ohio, shot and killed a 15-year-old girl. Her name was Micaiah Bryant. UBI, or Universal Basic Income, is coming to Los Angeles under a program called Big Leap, or Basic Income Guaranteed LA Economic Assistance Pilot. This week, multiple UBI programs were announced in Los Angeles, including $24 million in the mayor's new proposed budget, which gives $1,000 in cash every month to 2,000 families at or below the federal poverty line, with no obligation on how to spend it. The selection criteria for participant households is still being developed and will likely include supporting a child under the age of 18 and a demonstrated medical or financial hardship connected to COVID-19. Each council district would have a share of funding based on its poverty rate, and the program would be open to everyone regardless of immigration status. Another program in South LA is providing $1,000 a month to 500 households headed by single parents. And according to the LA Times, additional programs are being floated in the districts represented by Councilman Marquise Harris-Dawson, Council President Nuri Martinez, and Councilman Mark Ridley-Thomas. So for a program like this, giving cash directly to the people will help so many to be able to breathe and help pay for food, basic expenses, and rent. A lot of people have this misconception that if you give free money to people, they'll spend it on frivolous items or wasteful spend it. But what I found last year, along with many other basic income trials that have happened throughout the country, is that people, when they have free money and you're giving them cash directly, they spend it on food, on rent, on unpaid bills, on basic expenses. And that's what we found when we also did a basic income experiment last year. 
during our congressional campaign where we gave over $840 a month to 25 family individual recipients for three months. And they all got back to us and said how life-changing and transformative that monthly cash was to them and, and how much that would be to all of these families that will now get to participate in this program. So I'm pretty excited about this news. We'll just have to wait and see if the mayor really pulls through and it's not just lip service and that he actually does make it available to everyone and not just those who qualify through arbitrary means testing. Earlier this week, Mayor Eric Garcetti released his budget for the next fiscal year, which includes nearly $1 billion in spending on homelessness. Of the $1 billion, more than one-third would come from Proposition HHH, the 2016 bond measure to build permanent housing for unhoused residents. It's expected that Los Angeles will build or develop 89 of these Triple H projects over the next fiscal year for a total of more than 5,600 units, which is just a drop in the bucket, obviously. However, the future of these proposed plans are unclear, as federal judge David O'Carter also granted a preliminary injunction this week, telling the city and county that they must find single women and unaccompanied children on Skid Row a place to stay within 90 days, followed by families within 120 days, and by October 18th of this year, they must offer every unhoused person on Skid Row housing or shelter. Judge Carter also ordered that Mayor Garcetti's proposed $1 billion in spending be actually placed in escrow with funding streams to be accounted for and reported to the court by next week. He also requires a report to be made by the city in 90 days of every developer receiving funds from Triple H, in addition to new regulations to limit the possibility of funds being wasted. Meanwhile, Garcetti also proposed a total budget of over $3 billion, an increase to the LAPD's budget, despite the mayor showing on his budget summary that the LAPD had a 5% decrease in their budget. The $3 billion does not take into account the $150 million divested from the LAPD's 2020-2021 to budget, which was led by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and other community groups. The LAPD accounts for 46% of the city's total budget for unrestricted revenues, which are revenues the city can use for any general expenditure. Other agencies also received increases, including emergency management, transportation, parks and rec, and libraries, but nowhere close to what the LAPD received. And this data was put together by Los Angeles City Controller candidate Kenneth Mejia. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Christian Contreras is a civil rights attorney dedicated to representing individuals and families who have been subjected to civil rights violations. He is a co-founder of Justice X, a law group made up of black and brown lawyers who advance black and brown interests and the interests of marginalized communities. He's also a junior partner in the civil rights firm Aguizar, Henderson, and Carrasco, LLP. At GHC, Christian litigates from inception to trial, unreasonable and excessive force cases with an emphasis on police shootings cases. In addition, Christian is a partner at Fishbach, Dove, and Contreras, APC, where he advises small businesses in business law and practices business litigation. Christian also has an extensive pro bono practice with a focus on equitable causes representing marginalized communities and individuals. Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on The People with David and Fam. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned earlier, I was so excited to be on this show that I ran through downtown 
just to make it on time. So, you know, <laughs> I showed my excitement physically and I will make sure to show it throughout the show. <laughs> and where were you running from? Well, I was on Fifth Street uh, at the World Bank Tower and then I live on Spring Street. So I ran at least four blocks. <laughs> You're really, really dedicated to that. So we really appreciate having you on the show. Um, to get us started and to just kind of put a primer out there for our listeners, can you tell us what a civil rights attorney does and how that differs from, say, a criminal law attorney? Well, you, you first have to set the parameters on that because by default, a civil rights lawyer could mean anyone who engages in civil rights litigation essentially a lawyer who prosecutes civil rights cases, whereas a criminal defense attorney is someone who defends individuals who are facing criminal charges. So the, the distinction is clear. One is facing criminal charges. The other is prosecuting a civil case against a governmental entity or individuals who are affiliated with the government because by nature and then how people understand the civil rights action is that it all originates from the Civil Rights Act of 1871. So it, essentially what that act says is that anyone who is acting under the color of law who violates someone's rights is liable for uh, civil rights violations. So anyone acting under the color of law, what that means is anyone who has some sort of authority through the government. So a civil rights lawyer, of course, will prosecute such action in state or federal court, whereas a criminal defense lawyer just sees a case through uh, the charges and possibly a dismissal or not guilty or guilty verdict. So when I say we have to set the parameters is because anyone who prosecutes a civil rights case could be considered a civil rights lawyer, but I believe that's the de minimis classification of a civil rights lawyer. What I consider a civil rights lawyer is a civil rights advocate at all levels in including in litigation, which is the legal realm, which is in court, the political realm, of course, advocating for, for policy changes, and of course, cultural and societal activism and advocacy, where you are in the streets with the people, hand in hand with people who are making a change and actually doing something to bring about reform. Because I think 2020 was definitely a, a great year to see how everyday people could make change. If it wasn't for the protests of 2020, the George Floyd protests, there would be no reform. I believe we wouldn't even see a guilty uh, conviction of Derek Chauvin on all three charges as we did on April 20th, 2021. Because if it isn't for the people actually petitioning the government, which is one of the five rights within the First Amendment, then we wouldn't see anything actually being reformed. There would be complacency, there would be acquiescence in the system that we have. So a true civil rights lawyer operates in all those different levels. And the paradigm really is not just focusing on your, your legal case, but also focusing on ways to bring about justice and not just monetary forms. Because what the Civil Rights Act did is it allowed people to bring about uh, civil rights actions through, of course, the code 42 USC 1983, which is simply a codification of the 1871 Civil Rights Act. But at the end of the day, all it really brings you is money compensation, because that's what you do primarily with civil suits. There is some sort of compensation or maybe some equitable relief, such as a preliminary injunction or something of that effect. But money isn't everything. So really what I advocate with my clients is if you want true justice, true justice is getting to the truth. 
And true justice is, of course, never forgetting the person's name or the person whose civil rights were violated and actually making some long-term change. So those are some of the distinctions in terms of civil rights lawyers and criminal defense lawyers. But I think also, because I practice criminal defense too, but my emphasis is civil rights. What, what I really love about criminal defense is what's more fundamental than liberty? Because we see this throughout the first, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the eighth, and the 14th amendments. And really when you look at the Bill of Rights, which was ratified uh, three years after the Constitution of the United States was ratified, is that those Bill of Rights are really in place to protect people from a tyrannical government. And what, what you see with tyrannical governments is that they abuse their power by throwing people in jail. Look at third world countries or countries that are outside of the United States. They put people in jail. Look at Russia, for example, Vladimir Putin's adversary. As soon as he came back after they attempted to assassinate him, they threw him in jail and he's on the verge of dying. So what distinguishes America from a third world country or a country that isn't as progressive as America is that we have rights that protect against the fundamental abridgment of liberty. So criminal defense really protects that right to liberty, whereas civil rights, of course, it does protect against unreasonable searches and seizures as we see in the Fourth Amendment, but it also protects from a government uh, infringing on the, the rights of the people at large and also individuals who had specific instances of civil rights violations. With that being said, then, I mean, you've, you've provided us so much to talk about. Let's start with the Derek Chauvin trial in terms of, obviously, it is great news that now people are being held accountable, but is this an isolated event that's happening? Or is it something that's pushing us forward to a bigger movement that what you had referenced? Well, I'm actually surprised <laughs> at the conviction on all three charges. I'm very happy, of course. It, I did shed a tear of happiness because of what, what I saw and I heard of the, the charges, guilty on all three charges. I, I was very busy, so I didn't really get a chance to, to celebrate it. But I was very surprised that those charges came down the way they did, or the conviction came down the way it did, because I, I thought just the manslaughter charge would stick, but not the actual murder charge. So it's a different world in Minneapolis. We have 50 states, of course, but when you really look at the regional and demographic distinctions between, let's say, Los Angeles and Minneapolis, we somewhat live in a bubble. When I say we, it's Los Angeles. We live in this progressive bubble where, you know, we, we want to hold our government officials accountable. We want to hold police accountable. But let's say the South, which is notorious for slavery, Jim Crow, the Civil War, those people are not as progressive. Look at, look at what's happening in Georgia with the regressive uh, voting laws that are really an infringement and impediment to vote. So because Minneapolis was able to pull this off, I think it is a great marker in terms of the progress that is being made nationwide. If this could happen in Minneapolis, and I believe it could happen almost anywhere in this country, the, the immediate reaction, of course, is victory, it's celebration, jubilation, and it's really a time to celebrate what we're seeing because for the first time ever, we're actually holding individuals who are pretty much an extension of the oppressive uh, power the oppressive power being the majority, because the, the police, they protect the interests of, of the, the oppressor, of course, that's what they're there for. So what we see uh, in revolt to police violence is the revolt of the minority saying, look, 
we're not going to take it anymore. This is just an extension of systemic oppression. So the fact that we're able to see a guilty conviction of an arm of the oppressor, I think it's definitely a step forward. It is just one small step forward, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Does George Floyd's family now have a bigger claim uh, for a civil rights action? Well, that's one of the big issues that actually happened right at the beginning of the trial because there was a settlement and the settlement was simply from the the civil rights action. So we saw that there was a $20 million settlement, which is definitely unprecedented in these types of civil rights cases. I would say that the median settlement or verdict in civil rights cases stemming from deadly force would probably be somewhere in the two to $3 million range. So we're seeing an amount 10 times that in the George Floyd settlement, and it wasn't even a verdict. It was a settlement. So it was out of court before the lawyers even had to do anything. That happened right when the jury was becoming impaneled. And impaneled means that a jury was actually uh, sat down and chosen, and they were going to be the jurors that were going to decide the case. So we saw that the judge in the Derek Chauvin trial actually conducted additional voir dire, which is jury questioning, jury examination, to ask who saw the news about the settlement. And two jurors who were actually more on the progressive side said, yeah, we saw the settlement. And because of that, the judge excused those two jurors. So let's say hypothetically that there wasn't a settlement then. Yes, it would create a greater civil liability for Derek Chauvin because now he's found criminally culpable of uh, this crime and he was found criminally culpable of, of, of doing something that is unreasonable in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Krishna, I also want to chime in because you had mentioned there was a $20 million settlement and the numbers typically fall between two to three million. Why was this different? So it was $27 million. And the reason for that, it's unspecified. I didn't see the terms of the settlement. But of course, look at the implications of such a big case. It's one of the biggest cases we've had in years. The city, of course, they just wanted to close that chapter. I think that's one of the the considerations as to why the city uh, in Minnesota, Minneapolis, wanted to close the the chapter in this book. And also because of just what we saw. We saw a murder right before our eyes. We saw Derek Chauvin murder someone. And it wasn't just a shooting because, I mean, I don't want to justify shootings, but with shootings, you, you pull the trigger and it happens within seconds. Whereas with Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd, this was nine minutes or so of someone slowly, painfully, deliberately killing someone and other people telling him, look, you know, you're killing this guy. So I think definitely those elements in terms of the political implications, the social implications, the really woefulness of Derek Chauvin uh, were all considerations in such a large settlement of $27 million. In these types of police brutality and murder cases, do the police have loopholes and defenses, whether it be on the criminal side, just like with the trial that finally ended, or on the civil side? Well, let's start with something that applies to the criminal and civil side. There is an inherent bias in favor of police officers. There is this inherent bias that police officers can do no wrong. There is this demographic which believes that if you don't comply with an officer's commands, you should die. You deserve to be shot. So those type of people 
it's really a, a large demographic. Like I say, we live in a bubble and I think that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's good that we're around people who are like-minded, but at the same time, there's other people who don't think like us and they think that not listening to a police officer is a death sentence. So with that in mind, there's this huge deference to police officers. When there's this huge deference to police officers and it's really hard to overcome an officer's word. It's really hard to overcome an officer's version of the events unless there's objective evidence that contradicts that. So on the criminal side, in terms of a police officer being a witness in a criminal case where an individual is a defendant, then that, that really is an example of how officers can lie on the stand. For example, I am one of the attorneys in the class action against the city of Los Angeles for the misclassification of thousands of individuals as gang members, gang associates. One of the primary officers was Officer Shaw, Braxton Shaw. What he did is he was a serial perjurer. And not only was, a, was he a serial perjurer, he also uh, misclassified people as gang members in FI cards, field interview cards. And what that is, it's a police record which documents someone as a gang member. So this guy, was really running rampant. This officer, an ex-officer now who was criminally charged, was running rampant throughout Los Angeles, just lying, flat out lying. And not only was he doing that, he was on the stand committing perjury, lying under oath. So it went unchecked for such a long time because there's a presumption that officers are telling the truth. So that's just overarching in all cases. Now, a big issue is qualified immunity in civil cases. Qualified immunity says that if one is able to establish that there was a constitutional violation, and that's pretty much a prima facie showing, and that puts the burden on the plaintiff in a civil case, in a civil rights action, then that has to be proven before trial. And not only does it have to be proven, but there has to be a case on all fours or similarly clearly established that puts an officer on notice that their conduct is un unconstitutional. It sounds like a catch-22 when you really talk about it. It's this paradox where, well, if no one else has done it, then how is an officer supposed to know that their conduct is wrongful? That, that just makes no sense. So it's one of the biggest loopholes or one of the biggest ways that an officer can avoid liability in civil cases. So just those two primary loopholes are, are two that I could think of that are major impediments in obtaining justice. And also in these cases as well, we hear a lot about the victims, we hear a lot about police officers, but can you talk about the families as well? What type of impact does this have on the families and how are they an extension of, of victims of police brutality? Well, it's definitely multifaceted. First, you have the deprivation of a family member. You have police officers who are an extension of the state killing someone and taking that person away from this earth. That's, that's the very first violation. And that in and of itself is a huge traumatic experience. We see families and I see families because I have roughly 50 civil rights wrongful death cases that are hugely impacted by the death of a family member. Just think of your own family member. Think of your mom. Think of your, your son or daughter if you have one or think of a cousin or, or an uncle who is taken away from you simply because an officer decided that they wanted to shoot and kill someone. So that's a huge loss. It's it's traumatic. And it, I see my clients really go through this and it's, it's a tough, tough circumstance. The second issue is that the police are then punishing families 
for exercising the First Amendment right when they want to speak out against uh, the death of a family member. Most of these families, they become activated. They become some people who want to raise awareness to what's going on. What's going to happen then is you have police officers, and I've seen this uh, firsthand, and deputies within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department who come in and they want to really harass families because they're exercising the First Amendment right and they're raising awareness to what's going on. So you have the deprivation of a family member, then you have harassment that is continued at a greater level based upon your level of involvement in protests and your right to petition the government. And then you have these officers who are able to escape liability. Which So it's definitely a three-pronged attack that these families face. And it's really, really, really tragic what, what goes through um, their lived experience and what type of lived experience they're faced with now that someone uh, decided to take their loved, loved one's life away. Just a quick follow-up on that. You had mentioned the police punishing and harassing. What do you mean by that? How do they harass and continue that? Well, for example, one family in particular, they are present at rallies, at protests, and we see that these police officers, they follow these families home, they trail them, and they pretty much just try to intimidate them. And then also at memorial sites. So when a loved one is shot and killed somewhere, then these, these officers go to those memorial sites and they try to just intimidate and harass the families at the memorial sites. And I, I know of multiple, multiple families who have experienced this multiple times, and it's just really unfortunate how these officers think that it's a game and think that these families' trauma is is comical or, or should be taken lightly. In regards to something that you could perhaps share to the extent that you can with one of your clients, Isaiah Cervantes, how does that all come into play with his case in regards to the police continuing to harass? Well, Isaiah Cervantes was or is a 25-year-old autistic a young man who also was diagnosed with OCD and is deaf. He was shot in his own home on March 31st, 2021 in Cudahy, which is a neighborhood of Los Angeles County. What happened was the mother was simply asking for help. You know, she needed assistance at her home because Isaias was not really fully complying with her commands. He wasn't being violent. He wasn't committing a crime. So the, the deputies, Los Angeles County deputies were, call, were called to the home. They arrived to the home. And again, a crime was never in progress. An emergency was never in progress. The family informed the deputies that Isaias had autism, was deaf, and was essentially uh, mentally disabled. He, he has the capabilities of a six-year-old. So because these officers were informed with that information, they should have acted with better care. But as opposed to acting with better care and sensitivity to the needs of Isaias, they went into the home and within a matter of seconds, they pinned him to the floor. One deputy was choking him from Isaias's neck and another deputy was uh, holding Isaias to the floor face down with the deputy's knee on Isaias's back. Then that deputy in the back with his knee on Isaias's back brought out his service weapon, pointed it directly on Isaias's back and shot him in front of his family 
and without any provocation, without anything that uh, should have warranted deadly force. And we see this within the Fourth Amendment and Tennessee versus Garner, which is the case decided by the Supreme Court in 1989, that deadly force can only be used when there's an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. So that was nowhere near uh, meeting that standard. So not only was he shot in his own home, uh, then the family was interrogated. They were taken to the police station and treated like criminals. They were treated like criminals and they had, uh, they were coerced to give statements and now Isaias is still in the hospital. We're at the three-week mark in terms of how after the accident happened. And we still don't have we still don't have body-worn video. We still don't have the names of the deputies. We don't have any transparency or accountability from a sheriff's department, which allegedly prides itself on being transparent. That's all a farce, of course. So Isaias will likely be paralyzed for the rest of his life. And along with having these issues in terms of lung damage because the bullet entered uh, one lung and then uh, rested in his spine, which caused the par paralysis. So in addition to the mental disabilities that he has, now he's physically disabled, which shows that the callousness of, of these sheriff deputies. And not only that, they criminalize Isaias, they criminalize the family. And even now, uh, because it's such a big propaganda machine that these uh, the sheriff's department has a multi-million dollar budget, which aims at spewing out propaganda regarding shootings and uh, what they're doing in the community. They are attempting to uh, put Isaias in the light as a criminal, or they're, they're calling him a suspect. So it's really unfortunate what they do, and it's really uh, a, a big abuse of power from, from these sheriffs and from the sheriff's department uh, in Los Angeles County. So Isaias is is getting better but he like i said he is facing permanent disability for for the rest of his life how are they classifying him as a suspect a suspect of what well the first initial reports that we saw were were that isaias allegedly was attempting to gouge the eyes of one of the deputies that was proven categorically false we have four witnesses who did not see anything near uh, that uh, categorization or near that classification. Then allegedly there, there was uh, an assertion by the sheriff's department that Isaias was reaching for one of the guns of the deputies. That is also proven categorically false. And we have four witnesses who say the opposite. And I'm confident that the body worn video once it's released will show nothing near what the sheriff's department, the sheriff's department is initially saying, which was that Isaias was allegedly reaching for a gun and gouging the eyes of one of the deputies. So this just shows how they spin everything and how they attempt to justify their wrongful conduct. Were there previous calls to the LA Sheriff's Department by Isaias's family for previous incidents at all? Well, that's unclear, but if there were, then that would just actually strengthen Isaias's case, because then they would know, well, we've been called here before, we know this individual is autistic, and, you know, we should approach the situation differently. So it's unclear at this point, but like I said, like I said, if there were such calls, then that would just show that the, the sheriff's department is clearly in the wrong for not even looking up their own history and their own information in terms of calls previously made. And when do you expect this body-worn footage to come out and what causes the delay? Uh, with the other day, we had learned from a guest interviewee, uh, the reporter, uh, investigative journalist, Cerise Castle, that there's something called POBRA, Police Officers' Bill of Rights, where they get to go ahead and look at all of the evidence beforehand. Right. 
So you do have the Peace Officers Bill of Rights, and that's something that's not necessarily unique to California, but it is uh, not a majority uh, of states in the United States have that Peace Officer Bill of Rights, and it is codified in the California Government Code. And that's another issue, really, aside from how these deputies and officers are able to cover up their crimes, because before they're able to give any statement in terms of a shooting or any situation that involves use of force, they meet with an attorney. And I've taken multiple depositions of police officers and they have a script. The script is always under the totality of the circumstances. This is why I acted this way. So they get that framing from a case called Graham versus Carner, which was decided in the 1980s as well. And that just says that because the Fourth Amendment is a fact-intensive inquiry or whether a violation of the Fourth Amendment is a fact-intensive intensive inquiry, then one must analyze the totality of the circumstances to determine whether an officer's conduct was reasonable. So the Peace Officer Bill of Rights really tends to help officers because they're given an opportunity to make up a story and then stick to that story whenever they're questioned on it. So the Peace Officer Bill of Rights is, is not connected to uh, the disclosure requirements under the government code, which were which fall under the Right to Know Act, which uh, was a Senate bill that recently passed. But statutorily, they have 45 days to release the body-worn video from the date of the incident. But the, the determination in terms of whether the body-worn video will be released is based upon the discretion of the Sheriff's Department. And it, it's also a timing issue. I think tomorrow possibly will be a date that they release the body-worn video. And the reason they do that is because they wanna bury it under the Derek Chauvin news and uh, they, they don't want any media attention on this shooting. Given that the police have so much to hide behind, what does actual justice look like for families? And you can use the family of Mr. Cervantes as an example as well. Well, this is what, what I mean by being a civil rights lawyer entails bringing about change at a political level, at a legislative level, and a level which will bring about true reform. So one of the bills that I'm actually supporting is AB 118, and it's known as the Crisis Act. It may be renamed as the Isaias Cervantes Act. And what it is, is it allows for crisis teams to respond to situations which don't require police intervention. Because when you really think about why the police were called the night that Isaias was shot was because there was some need of help, but it wasn't necessarily police help. So if families and individuals are given an opportunity to call different services, then that would definitely preclude or prevent use of force incidents like we saw for Isaias Cervantes. So now going back to your question, what does justice look like? It's definitely relative to each family. One of the biggest inquiries I get as a civil rights lawyer is whether the officers or deputies will face criminal prosecution. So that is not up to us, unfortunately. We're not DAs, we're not prosecutors, so we don't get to make that determination. We only get to prosecute the civil rights case in a civil court. So justice, real, realistic justice would be getting to the truth, getting to know what really happened when someone was shot and killed or when someone was shot. A second form of justice is holding the individuals who violated your loved one's rights accountable. So accountability, I think, is one of the biggest forms of justice for me. 
And then of course, then you have money justice, how these civil rights acts cases and how these civil cases are litigated at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully there is some money to be had for the families to somewhat uh, relieve uh, the traumatic event that they, that they experienced. So you have the political, you have the legal, and then you have the monetary justice. And then you also have the uh, truth justice. So getting to the truth as to what happened. So those are definitely some forms of justice in terms of how these families are able to find relief. I do want to bring this up because you've mentioned it multiple times where in the case of Isaias and and people calling the police for mental health issues, police are not social workers. They're ill-equipped to handle mental health crises. So while you are working on and advocating for AB 118, what are alternatives that people can turn to for mental health resources? What would be some of your recommendations? Who can they call? Where can they go to? That's another issue that I have not discussed is that the Sheriff's Department actually has an MET team or MET, what that is, it's a mental evaluation team. And that's a specified unit which responds to calls which require some sort of mental aid or when someone is experiencing some sort of mental breakdown. We actually met with Sheriff Villanueva after the shooting and I addressed multiple concerns with him, the issues in terms of transparency and accountability. And when we asked him, why wasn't MET called? Why wasn't the mental evaluation team called? Well, he said, because it's a big county and they weren't uh, resourced enough to actually uh, respond to that call. So realistically, what, what we need to do and what families need to do who are experiencing someone, a loved one who is having a mental breakdown or is in mental distress is have your own community resources, which will help you in addressing the situation, possibly having a friend or family member, which could assist you in uh, addressing the situation or uh, making the situation a non-emergency situation. Because we know that police aren't equipped to do anything but shoot and then ask questions later. We know that police don't know anything but to use force against individuals. Police really are trigger happy individuals who get upset when you don't listen to them. You know, we, we've seen multiple videos, we've seen multiple instances where someone gets beat up simply because they failed to comply, which is their, their favorite uh, words, or you're resisting arrest, you're resisting arrest, which is simply their expression of their frustration that someone is not fully complying is, and is not being fully compliant with their commands. So officers and peace officers are not well equipped to address these situations and a revamping of the entire system is necessary to uh, help uh, families who, who usually experience situations like this. Let's talk about that. You've meant, you said revamping the entire system. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, let's say I wake up tomorrow and then they appoint me president of the United States. I'll, I'll, I'll take that position. I'll be like, all right, we're, we're ending police uh, unions, we're ending police stations, we're ending police departments. It's all getting scrapped. It's all ending. We would have community-based security and security community-based uh, accountability, but the entire system is rotten. The entire system is flawed. So it, it, it just needs to, it needs to be obliterated. It needs to be demolished and, and it, needs, it needs to be restarted and revamped from ground up because 
there, there shouldn't be such a thing as blue lives matter. There shouldn't be such a thing as the code of silence because it, this just means that bad officers are able to cover up their bad conduct because of good officers. So that's why I, I don't believe each officer is bad. I don't, I don't really believe that each officer in and of themselves are bad, but because they're not able to hold bad officers accountable, that's what makes them bad and that's what makes them bad. And I think that's definitely apparent in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department with deputy gangs. So we have maybe at least 10 cases which are suing the Sheriff's Department and suing individual deputies because of their involvement in deputy gangs. So there shouldn't be a reason why these deputy gangs even exist. That just shows that there is no accountability and that these officers and deputies are running around with impunity and doing whatever they want. So th that would be really how I would reform the system. And it's not that hard. It's really not that hard, but people make it hard. They make it seem hard because they're protecting the interest of police officers. Police associations and uh, deputy associations are a huge impediment to justice. And recently too, the deputy association, which revamped the qualifications for being a sheriff. So up until, since the inception of California in 1850 to 18, no, not 18, 1981, anyone could run for sheriff. You didn't need to have a law enforcement background, but a deputy association lobbied the legislature and they put this, this qualification that anyone who's running for sheriff, they need to have a law enforcement background. So recently I, I testified at the state capitol in support of Senate Bill 271, which eliminates that qualification and allows for someone without a law enforcement background to become sheriff of a county. And we need that diversification because there's this sort of brainwashing and this sort of indoctrination that occurs once someone becomes a, a police officer. They believe that blue lives matter more than regular lives. And they believe that the interests of the department and the police station go ahead of the community. So that's the reason why when someone goes into power, as opposed to putting the, the interests of the community first, they put the interest of protecting deputies and officers first. And that's, that is an, another example of why the system is flawed. Given the fact that you just shared about how we need to get rid of the system, abolish it, end it, right now, Los Angeles particularly here, we're in this defunding the police stage. What is your assessment of Measure J? And for those who haven't heard, what is Measure J? Well, Me Measure J was simply an, a reallocation of a percentage of the budget to from outside for, to, to devote them to social services. So originally it was supposed to be 10% of the county budget and Los Angeles County is fairly big. It encompasses 10 million people, you know, roughly 23 cities. So that would be a large amount, right? But the issue is now with Measure J is that the CEO recently actually uh, came out with an approximation of the 2021 to 2022 budget, which said that $100 million would be devoted to community development. So this is the issue. I believe I am optimistic, but you got to be realistic. Measure J is simply a countywide measure. It doesn't affect the state of California. It doesn't affect any other county outside of Los Angeles County. So what that means is there would be a refocusing of funds within the county to alternatives to policing. 
But what we're seeing in practice now is that there's only a certain amount of money that's being devoted to that. The, the county CEO said a few days ago that only $100 million would be devoted to community organizations and resources to uh, not incarcerating individuals. So Measure J, I think it, it, it was lofty and it is, it is a step forward, but in practice, it's not being executed how we would like it to be executed, but it is one form of defunding the police. And what that is, is taking money from the law enforcement agency and devoting it to other community resources. From this point forward, Christian, what are ways that people listening can get more involved, can contribute to this movement of really keeping our community safe and how that relates to uh, the police? There's many ways to get involved. I think the easiest way is definitely going to a protest. <laughs> Look, I talked about 2020 and the civil rights uh, movement because I, I see it as a movement and I still see it as moving forward. That only came about, that only was set into action because of people getting out to the streets, people protesting, exercising the First Amendment right and voicing their opinion against a system which is flawed. So that, that number one, that is top priority in terms of what you could do to bring about change and get involved. Even myself, I, I go to protests all the time. I went to probably three in the last five days. You know, you just go and it's a community which actually raises awareness of what's going on. The second thing that you could do is support local organizations. So my organization is Justice X, which is a coalition of black, black and brown lawyers advancing black and brown interests and the interests of marginalized communities. So I do emphasize and the interests of marginalized communities because we just pretty much help the voiceless. We are a voice for the voiceless. So helping an organization like us, maybe interning or volunteering or donating because we are a nonprofit organization, that is another way to support reform. That is another way to support justice. Another way to get involved is definitely petitioning your government. I think local and state politics is often overlooked. There's too much emphasis at the federal level. Reform could really come at the local level. Look at, look at Measure J. Reform could really come at the state level. Look at SB 271 or, or AB 118. So maybe you could get involved in uh, supporting initiatives and bills. And then another way to get involved is definitely by uh, helping families who have been affected by police violence. I know there are organizations which help them, help them, including us, like Justice X, but also organizations like the ACLU and NLG are doing a lot of great work in terms of supporting families and loved ones affected by police violence. Because I actually worked with the ACLU and NLG in a report for family harassment by the sheriff's deputy. So we should be publishing that report shortly and it will, highlight the injustices occurring after a family has had a loved one taken away from them. So those three things are definitely some of the top three things that I believe will allow someone to get involved, even if you know, you're not really that involved as being a lawyer or being a, a civil rights activist. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. We are currently speaking to Christian Contreras, who's a civil rights attorney dedicated to representing 
individuals who have been subjected to civil rights violations. And Christian, you had mentioned getting involved in different ways, including protesting, getting out there, petitioning your local government, but you've mentioned your organization multiple times, Justice Sex. So if people wanted to get more involved with y'all, what does support look like? Well, I would encourage people to reach out to us. Our website is justice-x.com. We hold regular rallies and events for families. For example, this past Saturday, we held an event for the family of David Sullivan, who was a 19-year-old killed by Buena Park Police Department officers on August 19, 2019. He was unarmed. He was not presenting a danger to officers, but these officers were able to get away with his murder because they said that allegedly he had a gun. They had no evidence of that. But anyway, we, we held that rally on Saturday and uh, we, we supported the family and we were there helping them. This Sunday, we're having another event for the family of Isaias Cervantes uh, to really uh, raise awareness to what's going on. And this one should actually occur at the East Los Angeles Sheriff's Station where the deputies who shot Isaias were stationed. So reach out to us, reach out to me, uh, go to our website or uh, go to our Instagram and connect with us. And we're, we're more than happy to uh, accept volunteers and interns. And what's your Instagram? My Instagram is Christian. It's spelled like the religion, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N period G-H-C. And how about Justice X? Is there an Instagram for that? Yes, it's at Justice X underscore PDA. Before you go, how did you end up joining Justice X and getting connected in that community? Well, Justice X was essentially an organic movement and an organic uh, act between myself, Humberto Vizal, uh, Stephen King, and Austin Dove. So I'm one of the junior members, but uh, what happened was last year on May 30th, or the day right before George Floyd died, Humberto and Stephen held a national memorial for lives lost at the hands of law enforcement. The very next day we saw George Floyd being murdered on TV. So we decided that we needed to do something. So uh, we partnered up, Humberto, Stephen King and Austin Dove. And we said, look, uh, we see these mass amount of arrests based off protests. It's something that should not be happening. People are exercising the first amendment right. So we're going to form a coalition of non-criminal lawyers to represent protesters pro bono. So ever since then, Justice X has been evolving. We were involved in a, a different number of initiatives, including the class action against the city of Los Angeles. We have an education initiative where we uh, teach uh, the youth about their rights and the law. We also uh, rep advocated for LAX workers who were being deprived of their medical benefits during the pandemic. We also uh, are still representing protesters pro bono, and we're pretty much just the 911 of civil rights violations. We're the first responders to any civil rights violations, and uh, we're on top of any uh, initiatives which uh, can advance social equity. That's fantastic. And Christian, we are just, we are pretty much out of time with you. We want to thank you for joining us on the People with Save It and Fam. This has been an awesome conversation, and you were great. So thank you. So for those who are now just tuning in, you are listening to The People with David and Fam on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. 
Bicycle Meals is adding another volunteer day to their schedule. The group is a volunteer-run and donation-based program that delivers lunch sacks and essential goods to unhoused folks throughout Koreatown on Monday and Friday mornings at 11. Now they're adding a Saturday delivery to their schedule. To learn more, check out at Bicycle Meals on Instagram. Again, that's at Bicycle Meals on Instagram. If you're looking for a fun place to find all kinds of awesome artisan knickknacks and food, Our Piece of the Pie is an outdoor artisan's market in downtown LA, highlighting local BIPOC businesses and makers. They usually open once a week on Fridays or Saturdays. So to get a closer look at their schedule, check out at Our Piece of the Pie on Instagram. Every Wednesday at 3 p.m., Black Lives Matter Los Angeles hosts a rally in front of the ACLU building at 1313 West 8th Street. Their action, Fund Services, Not Police, centers around abolishing police associations that consistently refuse to hold cops accountable for their actions. This includes the criminalization of black and brown community members and the failure to prosecute killer cops. During these gatherings, BLMLA holds space for families of victims of police violence. They also feature speakers such as Dr. Melina Abdullah, Baba Akili, and Janaya Future Khan. As May Day, General Strike Day is one week from today, there will be a focus on workers and labor at the upcoming Wednesday and Police Associations Rally by BLMLA. So we've talked about different types of law today from civil rights to criminal. David, you are also a lawyer and you're starting a new job. Yes. How did you know? <laughs> because I probably told you, you. You tell me things and I remember them. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for remembering. It makes me feel special. Yes. So yesterday was my last day as an immigration litigation attorney and I've it was, it was a very meaningful chapter of my life, being able to help undocumented clients in court when they receive their removal or deportation notice and finding ways for them to stay here. And given that we no longer have a, a horrible, evil, crazy president in office, but, but still a president that we still need to be monitor and monitoring and, and, and and watching to see what type of immigration reform he'll bring to the families here. Um, I do believe now is the next chapter. And so I will be joining juvenile dependency law uh, in the children's welfare system. And I will be defending parents um, in a system that criminalizes black and brown mothers and fathers. I will be their attorney advocating for uh, their custody of their children. And, and preventing child protective services from taking their children away. So it's the equivalent of being a public defender, but in the children welfare system. And so I'm, I'm very excited. I have my own personal and family history with substance abuse and domestic violence and, and other issues. And so this is something that's really comes close to my heart. So I'm pretty excited. That's awesome. Really excited to hear about this next journey you've got going on. Thank you. You're the best, <laughs> <Raffi>. <laughs> With that being said, since you've, I'll let you do the honors first, amazing co-host. What are you grateful for? Okay, so these are some of the little things I really appreciate, but there is this Vietnamese restaurant in Koreatown called K-Town Pho. It is my favorite place 
Vietnamese place that's not in the San Gabriel Valley and it is the closest thing to my mom's cooking that I can get within walking distance. So I had that for lunch today and I got their summer rolls or nem nung and I got their bun bò hue which translates to a beef noodle soup basically. Um, and yo, that was just straight comfort food. So that's something I'm grateful for is food is takeout that reminds me of my mom's cooking for sure. Yo, thank you for sharing that that gem of knowledge. Everybody, you got that, right? <laughs> What are you grateful for? I'm grateful that Derek Chauvin was um, found guilty of the three charges today. It doesn't do any justice for George Floyd because he can't come back to life, but it at least shows us that accountability is still something that is real and that there is still some hope to be had. And so I'm thankful that accountability was done today. And once again, we also want to thank Christian Contreras for joining us on The People with David and Fam. And as a reminder, you can find him on Instagram at christian.ghc. And you can also find JusticeX on Instagram at justicex underscore PDA. You can hang out with The People with David and Fam every Saturday at 10 a.m. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at thepeople underscore LA. That's at the people underscore LA. We're active on social media, so hit us up on our DMs and let us know what you thought about this week's episode and tell us what issues, what guests, what community events you want to hear about next week. We want to learn what's important to you. The People with David and Fam is hosted by David Kim and me, Christina DM Fam. We produce the show alongside Nathan Mosto. The show is written by myself and Nathan. Our sound editors are Jeff McAllister and Nasser Malik. Jeff also composes our music. And of course, this show wouldn't be possible without the team over at KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Remember, our show is rooted in you, the people. We're here to turn up the volume on your voices. We're here to hold space for your concerns. And ultimately, we're here to empower and arm y'all with the knowledge to make informed decisions as community members. Talk to y'all next week.